Welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, where we hope to bring you closer to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson. I'm here once again with my co-host, Carly Harrod. Hi, Carly. Hi, Andy. So spring is well underway and there is so much coming to life at the moment. Yes, the birds are breeding here. I've got robins building nests in the garden and the blue tits checking out the nest boxes. I've had uh, bumblebees and butterflies about. Daffodils are all well out. So there's a lot going on at the moment. There is, isn't there? And there's so much we can talk about this month. But one of our special habitats is Heathland. And Heathland is home to some of our rarest and most exciting wildlife, such as smooth snakes and Dartford warblers. And today we're going to be talking with Jean from the North Sites team about the secrets of our Heathland. But what exactly is a Heathland, Andy? Actually, I was out in one of our Heathlands earlier this week, helping a local team with their breeding bird surveys on the Heathland. Heathlands are often seen as wastelands, but they're immensely rich in very special wildlife. It probably began about 5,000 years ago when humans started clearing trees, growing on infertile soils or the sandy soils around the country, probably to entice game into clearings to make hunting easier. And later they were used for livestock grazing. So most heathlands are thought to be dating from around the Bronze Age some 3,000 years ago. The poor soils were no longer of use for growing crops or really intensive grazing, but they still held value for providing rough grazing, heather for thatch, turfs for fuel, rack of a bedding and potash for soap, also heating the bread ovens. Um, and all this activity would have kept the areas clear of most trees. And in heath, you tend to find it's just mainly gorse and short heather and short grass with bare ground. So this landscape used to cover quite a lot of the country, didn't it? But it's now become very rare. Yes, Hampshire still has quite a lot, such as the New Forest, but other areas have lost huge areas of heathland. I was lucky enough to manage heathlands in the north of the county that Jean now works on. Hi, Jean. Hi, Andy. So you work in the north of the county. Um, how long have you been up there? I will have been there 12 years this year. Yeah, I, I started there, I hate to say it, 30 years ago. We're talking about heathlands, but there are different types of heath, aren't they? Which sort of sites do you look after? So the heaths we look after are lowland heaths, and they're made up of a mosaic of habitats that include valley mires, wet heath and dry heath. Um, and each of these habitats has its own conditions that suit the different plants and, and animal species that live there. So which sites do you actually manage? So the team I work with managed Yately Common and Castle Bottom National Nature Reserve in the north of Hampshire. And then down the east side of Hampshire, we also manage Short Heath Common and Brock's Head Common. Um, and all four of those are lowland heathlands. So these, aren't, these are away from the New Forest, aren't they? These are in the different areas of the county. Yeah, these are, these are all up... up the, the north and east of, of the county. So um, they're, they're very separate from the New Forest and um, they're much smaller sites than the New Forest. Is it part of those bigger areas, say in the, what we call the Weald and the Thames Basin, so those, those areas there, and those heathlands would have been much bigger, wouldn't they? So what's happened to make them smaller? Yeah, so in the, in the last 200 years, about 84% of heathlands, low, lowland heathlands, have been lost um, through development and conifer plantations. So, um, so up in the north of the county, we don't have the vast expanses like in the New Forest. We just have sites that are part of bigger networks of sites. So, as you said, the Thames Basin Heath up in the north and, and the Wealden Heath um, in, in, the, in the east. And it, so rather than have the large expanse of heathlands, we, we have pockets of heath that are all sort of interconnected in, in a network. So you've ended up with little tiny fragments of uh, heath and like little pockets left all over the place. You haven't got the big expanses like with the New Forest now, have you? No, no, absolutely not. Um, they're, they're just small sites that um, are interconnected with other small sites. 
Um, so it's really important that we manage the, the, the sites in, in combination with each other. So what sort of work do you carry out to keep those, those areas open? So um, our team work on, uh, on keeping the heathlands open. So heathlands will naturally try and uh, scrub up and regenerate into woodlands because they're no longer traditionally used in the same ways that they were years ago. Do that through a combination of works. We use volunteers to help uh, remove scrub in, in the winter time. So removing uh, birch saplings, oak saplings, pine saplings. Um, and if, if the site has uh, too much gorse on it, removing some of the gorse as well to manage the, the, the amount of that um, and to, to just maintain the open character. Um, but due to the size of our sites, um, we can't really just maintain the sites with, with just human power. So quite often we have to use uh, machinery in certain areas to help clear large areas to, uh, to maintain that open space. It seems quite counterintuitive. There's a lot of messaging about how good trees are and planting trees and all this sort of thing. But quite often, some of the work we do is actually clearing those trees, isn't it? It's really, it's difficult to explain to people, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Heathlands is, a, is especially, especially bad in that respect, that, that people just don't understand the work we do. Um, so we, we do a lot of work to try and to explain to people why, why we need to remove the trees in those areas. Um, and, and the reason for that is that, that obviously the, the special plants and animals that, that live on heathlands have become dependent on that open landscape that's, that's rich in, a, well, I say rich, it, it's, it's acidic soil. So um, it's, it's considered waste ground because it's very poor in soil, which means that the heathers and the gorses thrive there. And this brings in a unique diverse range of species that are reliant on this habitat. So if we were to allow all, all of it to scrub up and become woodland again, then, then obviously we would lose, lose those important species. And there's that strange thing, isn't it? We say it's poor soils, but poor soils normally leads to very rich diversity because they, if you get really rich soils, only a few species can dominate, but you're, you're removing that dominance by a few species and allowing a lot more species to get in there by having this poor conditions, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and heathlands, if you, if you kind of look below the kind of instant views and, and um, the open landscapes that people generally visit for, and if you actually really get down to it, the, the species um, that, that live there are, are quite remarkable, um, diverse range of them. That, that most people miss when they visit the site, but are, are really, really quite amazing. Yeah, one of my specialisms was uh, bees and wasps. I know, I mean, two of the sites you now manage, uh, Castle Bottom and Broxet Common, there's over 100 species of ants, bees and wasps living on those places. And it's really amazing what it does hold. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of the work we do to, to manage the site includes is work for those species as well. So um, last year we, we had volunteers out um, creating bee banks on Castle Bottom. So um, creating bare earth banks that are suitable for bees to, to mining bees to kind of find little ways into and create holes in so that they can, they can uh, nest in them. So, um, so we do, do work for all sorts of species as well. So there's quite a lot of um, very scarce species on there. I mean, which particular ones are your favourites? Well, I think my favourite has to be the silver-studded blue butterfly. Uh, it's a lovely little butterfly, um, really distinctive blue with, with these sil silver sort of um, spots on, on its hind wings. 
and it's quite often missed by visitors to the site because it's so small and, and, and it likes to live out on the um, on the young shoots of heather. So it, it, it lays its eggs on the young shoots. When they hatch as caterpillars or pupae, they have a really interesting relationship with ants. The caterpillars smell like the ants, so the ants take them into their nests uh, where they overwinter and then obviously um, hatch as, um, as butterflies the following year. And, and each year they do this, they, they live on the young heather. Um, and that's why we also manage the heathlands for a mosaic of different age structures of plants. So um, not, not only different age ranges of heathers, but gorses as well, as different plants, um, different plants, different animals rely on different age structures of, of, of heather out on the heath uh, in order to survive. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these insects in particular have got really interesting lifestyle. I mean, have you heard of the slave make ant? Have you ever seen that out on site? I've not seen it, but yes, I have heard of it. So it's, um, people know wood ants, those big red and black ants you get living in the woods to make the big mounds. It's a relative of theirs, um, but they live pretty, almost exclusively on the heathlands. And they make much smaller nests. And they're called slave makers because what they do is they, they raid the nests of a certain black ant that lives near them and they steal their young and pupae, take them back to their nest. And then when those ants, those black ants hatch out, they look after the colony of the slave maker ants. Act really like, as you would with slave, which is, a, it's a fantastic story. And there's loads of these sort of stories on the heathland. There's so many species to talk about. So the thing these insects are really quite like the heathlands for is that sun getting down to the ground. You know, because when the trees come in, they cause shading and then the, the ants can't survive on the ground and all those ground nesting bees will disappear. Um, and clearly another thing that uh, is quite important on the heathlands is um, reptiles, isn't it? So what special reptiles have you got on the site? Yes, absolutely. Um, on our heathland site, we have adders and grass snakes and um, also common lizards. Um, on Broxhead Common, which is one of our sites, we, we've also got um, recent... Um, records of sand lizards as well, which are spread over from, from a neighbouring site. So um, we have all of those those, those reptiles on site um, and potentially um, also smooth snake, although um, we don't have any recent records of those. So, so we don't know if, if they're currently currently on, on any of our sites at the moment. Reptiles are really a really important part of, of the heathland habitat as well. Um, so we we have uh, we work closely with um, the Hampshire Isle of Wight and amphibian reptile group who who survey them across our sites and um, it's really important to get survey results for them so that that can tell us how to maintain certain areas of the heath ensure that we maintain the open heathland areas that we have that mosaic of uh, plant species that I talked about earlier and the areas that are known hibernaculars so places where the, um, the, the snakes will overwinter, that they don't commit to overgrown. So I talked earlier about um, some of the helping out the bird service. I know you've been out quite early as well, looking for some of the birds as well, haven't you? Yes, at this time of year, not too early, but as we get into summer, it, it does get earlier and earlier, um, up for sunrise and, and out searching for, for the heathland birds that, um, that, that call uh, our heathlands home. Um, so these include the, the wood lark, which is, is a ground nesting bird and has this beautiful song. You see them sort of uh, ho hovering above, above the ground and, and singing out. Also the, the Dartford warbler at this time of year, 
um, which is a very shy and elusive little bird, but um, you can see it flitting around um, the, the gorse bushes. Um, so, so those are the two sorts of primary birds that we're looking for at, at this time of year. But then we're, we're also recording any, any other warblers or um, woodpeckers or any kind of birds that, that we're seeing out on the heat at this time of year in, in the early morning. And as we get into the year also, the, the nightjar will start turning up as well. And that's a, such a weird bird, isn't it? Absolutely. The nightjar is, is, is a very mysterious little um, bird. I say little, it's bigger than the, than the other birds I've mentioned. But it, it, it heads back over from its, its wintering grounds in Africa. From, from about now onwards, um, they, they can start to arrive sort of end of April, May time. And they are ground nesting birds. So um, they're very well camouflaged. Um, if, you, if you ever see one on the ground, it, it just looks like a, a stick or a log. It's, um, they, they don't have to build a nest because they just find a hollow in the ground and, and they look just like, like a piece of stick on the ground. Um, and they generally will stay on their nest throughout the day. So very few people really tend to, to see them um, unless they go out specifically looking for them because during the day they, they're just sat on the ground. And then at night, um, that's when they, they really get, get busy and they're, they're, they're nocturnal birds. So they come up at the sunset and um, you can see them swooping across the open habitat. And they have this, this amazing sound that they make, this churring sound. I'm not even going to try and replicate it because I couldn't do that. Um, but, but it's very, a very eerie sound that kind of echoes out across the heathland. It's wonderful to hear and to see them swooping, swooping around at sunset, feed, feeding on the, the, the moths and insects that, that are flying around. You said you weren't, weren't in, you know, you didn't want to do an impersonation of a nightjar, and I don't blame you because, you know, I don't think I could do one these days. Well, I couldn't do one ever, I don't think. But we've actually managed to find a little recording we're going to play. They really are strange birds. There's a lot of mythology around them. I mean, um, some names are like fern owl, uh, but there's an old name called goat sucker because it was thought they used to go into people's barns at night and drink the milk and steal the milk from the goats. Clearly, they don't do that. I mean, they feed on moths, don't they? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think, that as you say, there's a lot of mythology behind them um, and because people just didn't understand them because they only came out at night but um yeah you you can you can definitely see that they're definitely just eating insects and, and swooping around so um so none, none of those are true fly around the edges of woods and they can fly fly quite several miles to go and hunt but they quite often like those woodland edges because that's where the moths are tends to be um and actually if you've ever had them in the hand if you're ringing them things like that they've got they've got a little they've got a massive mouth it looks like the top of the head's coming off. You clearly they fly along and catch them in their big mouths, catch the moths in their big mouths. And they've got these bristles that stick out the side of the mouth as well to funnel the moths in. Um, but they've also got in their middle toe, the claw has got a comb on the inside of it. And I think that's probably for cleaning the, these bristles on the side of the mouth. They're very weird birds. So you talked about woodlark nesting on the ground, including the nightjar nest on the ground. The, um, the dark warble actually nests close, to, normally not more than a foot above the ground in the heather. Um, so, I mean, this is really, they're really susceptible disturbance, aren't they? They are indeed, yeah. And at this time of year when, when they're nesting, we, we very much ask visitors to the heath to 
be be wary of that and to stick to the main paths and to keep dogs out of the vegetation and under close control because yeah as you say they are really at risk of being disturbed and obviously if if they have nested they they could be um could be scared off their nest and and they might not return um night gels are quite interesting um in that when they're disturbed from their nest they they tend to fly off in a um in a haphazard way as if they're injured so that they draw any predator away from the nest um so that's quite interesting um, but generally, we, we do encourage people to try and not disturb them as much as possible so that so that they can they can nest without disturbance and their populations can can continue to grow because they are they are a threat threatened species um, with with loss of habitat that, that we talked about earlier, far fewer places to, um, to to nest than than they would have done in the past. So it's really important that we help to protect them. And that's why we ask people to keep their dogs under control as well and keep them to the path. That sort of level of service can quickly impact these birds, can't they? Absolutely, yes. Um, their, their populations have, have been monitored um, over the past 10, 10 15 years, and um, they are very susceptible to changes. Um, so any disturbance can, can have a huge effect. But, but also um, the weather conditions when they're nesting, Dartford warblers in particular are, are highly susceptible to the snow. Um, so, so if the snow comes at the wrong time of year, if, if say we have, have a, a late winter snow, um, just at the point where they're nesting, they can actually get trapped in the gorse, under the gorse and heather um, and not be able to get out to feed. So, um, so their populations really do sort of go up and down depending on, on the conditions that, that are around each year. So it, it's vitally important that we, we do everything we can to help protect them. And that's the old thing about Dartford warblers as well, because they're insect eaters like the nightjars are. Uh, the nightjars travel down to Africa for the winter, because uh, clearly there's not a lot of um, moths flying around for them. Um, but the Dartford warblers, they like feeding in, that, in the gorse where there's um, hibernating spiders and other insects. So they don't leave for the winter, do they? They stay with us. No, absolutely. Yeah, we, 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 we can um, survey them all year round. Um, obviously, you know, we primarily survey in the, um, in the springtime. But yeah, we, we get records all year round of Dartford warblers out on <laughs> And it's those really severe winters that really knock them back, as you say, that long lying snow, that massively bad winter of 62, 63. I don't even remember that one, um, <laughs> where we had snow lying for three months. I think the population of Dartford warblers went down to about five pairs in the entire country. Um, but you've got more than that now, haven't you? Just at Yateley Common, how many do you think you've got there? So on Yateley Common, we've we've got at least at least five pairs just on that one site. Um, so so the same same number as you said that it went down to in the whole country, and and they are doing extremely well. They they quite regularly have young, and uh, we, we're definitely seeing an increase in the population. In fact, um, figures from the Thames Basin Heath um, surveys that, that were carried out last year found that all three of the woodlark, nightjar and Dartford warbler populations are at the highest they've been um, in, in the last 10 years. So, so that's really good news for their populations. Um, but obviously, as, we, as, we, as we've already said, you know, the weather conditions are, are a big factor in that. And um, it only takes one bad winter and that, that can completely plummet again. Yeah, so clearly we can't control the snow and the weather 
Um, but the best we can do is actually make sure the conditions of the heathlands are there for them when the times are good for them, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we, we, we can't manage the weather, as you say. So we obviously spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the heathlands are kept open, that there's that mosaic of, of different plant structures. Um, and that, that also um, there, there's, there, there are still trees around the edges and, and calling posts for the birds to, to land on so that they can see out over the heath and they can call to each other. And, and that we just maintain the, the heathland as best we can um, as, as a good environment for them. One particular issue on heaths is fire. I mean, it's been a traditional management in quite a lot of places. And actually, Heather, it's quite odd. The seed reacts to heat and it can make it more likely to germinate. But fire at the wrong time for us is just a nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of our sites are, as we've discussed, quite small sites. So we tend not to use um, fire as a management technique, um, simply because there's, there's too many people around and, and it's too, too built up in the environment. Wildfires can be devastating for heathlands. If a, heat, if a wildfire happens at the wrong time of year, then it can wipe out all the great work that we've done to the heathlands. Um, and it, it can really devastate um, devastate the population of species that are there at the time. Wildfires generally, obviously, tend to happen when it's drier, um, so in the summer months. And at those times of years, you've got the birds nesting, you've got reptiles out and about, you've got insects flying around, and, and those can all be affected by the loss of habitat, but, but also kill themselves if, if they're in, in that area. Um, so, so wildfires can be be a huge problem for us so we, we do try and uh, let people know about the, the the issues of wildfires and obviously at certain times of year we ask people to be extra cautious when out on the heat making sure that they're not discarding anything I mean even a even a plastic bottle can diffract light and 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 cause um, something to start heating up and, and, and smoke and fire um, so you know we ask people not to out, put cigarettes out on the heath and and not to have barbecues in the countryside um, unless you're in a site where where that's particular specifically allowed so out on our heathland sites anything that's likely to cause any sort of fire um, we, we ask people not not to do um, and to, to really try and avoid any activity that, that could cause fires to spread easily. Gorse, in particular, um, burns at really high temperatures. So, um, so the, the fire on, on a heathland can really build up temperature and spread very quickly across a heathland. So, um, so yeah, you're not just talking about little fires. Wildfires can, can have huge, devastating effects on heathlands. So we always have to ask the question of our people who come on this, but uh, where do you think your favourite site is? That's a very difficult question to answer. All our sites, they're each unique in their own way. Um, but I think my favourite has to be uh, Castle Bottom National Nature Reserve. It's a lovely little site. It's hidden up in the, the north of the county. Um, I'd like to say not very many people know about it, but it's it's becoming famous in its own right. Lots, lots more people are using it these days than, than ever before. But it, it's a beautiful to say. It, it's one of the only ones we have that is grazed. So we have um, a, a group of Exmoor ponies that graze it. So they're lovely to go out and see. But it also has a little stream running through it. Um, and it has the, the whole sort of range of habitats from the, from the sort of mire to the wet heath and the, and the dry heath above that. 
Um, and it's just it's just a really lovely sight to go and walk around. Um, I especially like to go out on a sunny morning when there's not too many people around and um, and you can catch catch glimpses of, of the dragonflies and butterflies in, in the sun just kind of warming up for the day. So it's it's a really, really kind of special site to go and visit. Yeah, that's, that's the correct answer, Jean, because uh, <laughs> it was my first site when I became a ranger in the early 90s. And I was actually the first ranger for that site when the county bought it. And it is a fabulous little site. Well, thank you, Jean. It's been great to hear about the special habitats and the sensitive management and the, actually the great work that your team does in trying to protect these sites. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great talking about it. to find out what you can find in these special places. Some top tips that can help make the most of your visit are to visit at dusk on summer evenings if you are hoping to hear night jars and scan the tops of gorse bushes because they are the favourite perching posts for the dark foot warblers, stone chats and other heathland birds. Also look in sunny spots for basking reptiles such as the lizards and you may even be lucky enough to spot an adder. I've actually never seen a live adder in my 20 years of being a ranger. So I will be out looking for one this summer. But please remember to stay on the paths and don't let your dog wander off either. The plants and animals that call our heathlands home are especially sensitive to disturbance and we need to help them continue to thrive. Yes, it's all about following a code and ensuring you know what to do when you're out and about and exploring. So Andy, are you ready for another of Carly's fun facts? I'm always ready for Carly's fun facts, Carly. <laughs> so, we all know now, hopefully, that a slow worm is not a worm or a snake, but it is in fact a legless lizard. But did you know that they can live for up to 20 years? Yeah, for such a small animal, it's, uh, that's quite an age, isn't it? It is. And did you know that the female incubates her eggs internally, so she gives birth to around eight legless lizards every summer? And you talked about adders earlier. Adders do the same. They don't lay eggs like you imagine, you know, most lizards and, and uh, snakes to do. They, they keep their young inside them and give birth to live young. Yeah. And that's why I probably never found any slow worm eggs in my compost heaps, even though I have lots of slow worms. Yeah, you never will. No. Um, and actually, the, if you want to go out and see adders, about now is the best time to do it. Because when it's really hot in the middle of the summer, they eat up at the start of the day and then they disappear into the undergrowth. But actually now, they're actually coming out of hibernation and they're trying to warm up. So if you look carefully along banks where you know there's other populations, um, you can sometimes see them sitting in little sunny areas. Hopefully I'll be off to visit some of Jean's sites in the north of the county and hopefully support some others. So we hope you have all enjoyed this episode of Looking After Nature. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. Please let us know by checking out Hampshire Countryside's social media pages. And also check out Yateley Common and the North Sites Facebook pages too. We really appreciate it if you rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this helps other people find us. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time.